Hello, and welcome to Industry Focus Security, the podcast where we speak with industry experts from government, public safety, corporate security, and all other agencies that help keep us safe and secure. Today, we are pleased to be joined by the Superintendent of Public Schools for the Lincoln-Rhode Island System, Dr. Filippelli. Doctor, thank you for joining us here today. Thank you so much, Brian. Glad to be here. So as an educator, over your years, I'm sure that you've seen school safety and how it's handled change dramatically. Now, I know that you serve on the Rhode Island uh, Committee for School Safety, uh, which operates, I, I believe you said, under the legislative body of the state. So tell us a little bit about what got you interested in this topic and why you've chosen to dedicate so much time to, to bringing your knowledge of schools and how they operate to bear. Sure, thank you. Yeah, so um, I've been a school administrator now for 21 years. I, I got into it uh, when I was just about uh, 29 years old and I was an assistant principal. And uh, right prior to that was Columbine. And so as a result of Columbine, and unfortunately, sometimes it is still the case today, although we're getting better at it, um, everything was a knee-jerk reaction. And so people started to realize, wow, if Columbine could happen there, could it happen in my district? And very early on, as a very young assistant principal, I started to get involved in school safety, and I was on the crisis response team. Uh, in the district I was prior uh, to Lincoln, I was in uh, Situate, Rhode Island for a long time as a teacher, administrator, and superintendent as, as well there. And it just really became my passion. And so uh, as a result of that, uh, I started to learn more. I started to get certified in various um, FEMA courses. I started to go to more trainings, and I started to learn a lot about what uh, school safety was and also what it wasn't. And then that, of course, led to creating best practices for lockdown. Um, at the time, no one was thinking what a shelter in place or a restricted movement even was then. It was just um, lockdown. Uh, also working with local and state police, uh, even back then when you, when you look at Columbine, it, they were still operating from a SWAT mentality. That, of course, has changed dramatically over the years where there is no longer a wait when something is happening. The first responders go right to the threat and neutralize the threat. That, that is the protocol. So um, I've seen all, all of those changes over the last 21 years as an administrator and really have been kind of on the forefront of that as the changes were happening. And happy to say, honestly, through the Rhode Island Safety Committee, and also working with the legislature, we have created uh, laws and policies and procedures uh, for schools uh, in Rhode Island based on best practices. Now, you're obviously you're dealing with a population that varies greatly from young kids to, you know, older high school kids and then staff. How do you craft a plan that, you know, can be used, you know, across that wide spectrum of ages and abilities and things like that? And how do you do it in a way that 
you don't scare people. I mean, you want them to be able to sort of think we know that, you know, in emergencies, we, we, you know, we revert to muscle memory, what we know, what we've trained, what we've practiced. But there's, a, I hear from, you know, parents, you know, that I know that, you know, when they do school safety drills, that it can instill fear if it's not done correctly or if it's done too often. So how do you balance all those ages and the, you know, the risks involved in overtraining or undertraining? I mean, it, it seems like it's, it's got to be a really difficult undertaking. It is. So the, the, the main thing is creating the blanket procedure, blanket policies that everyone is going to follow. So here in Lincoln, like many districts across the country, we use Alice and we use, you know, modified Alice. Uh, the, that's the protocol, which is essentially um, a take on run, hide, fight. And all of our staff members are trained on that. The students are trained on that. The students are also trained on evacuation procedures and lockdown procedures, as well as, you know, shelter in place and, and restricted movement. Interestingly, when you're dealing with the different age groups, you're, you are completing the same process and procedures, but you, you are making it age appropriate. So the language might be diff different for the younger kid. It will still be plain language, but it will be different and modified for them so that they know that it's important that they leave or they know that it's important that they lock down, but it's done in a way where the teacher takes more control and the, and the teacher at the elementary level really is the person who is responsible for the actions of all the kids in that classroom. When you get to the, uh, the secondary level, you know, seven through 12 or six through 12, depending on how your middle school is set up, uh, those students are obviously much more aware. They can actually help the teacher in an emergency and we rely on them to do that, right? Because that is part of the Alice training. So at the younger grades, it's much more teacher focused at the upper grades. Yes, of course, the teacher is still the person giving the directions, but the kids are also trained on helping out. I will give you an example. A few weeks ago, we did a, a modified lockdown drill here and we did it in the middle of passing time. So a, a lot of times when you drill, you're just drilling, you know, at 10 o'clock in the morning on a Thursday. OK, everybody's in class. Sure, we can do a lockdown fairly quickly then. Do that in the middle of passing and watch the chaos because now students are trying to figure out, okay, I, I know that I have to go to the class that I was going to. Where is that? Where, you know, now I've got to get there. When we uh, observed that drill, we were seeing kids helping each other at the high school level, telling them, you need to come here, come with me, let's go into this classroom. So e the kids knew, they knew even though they may not be able to get to their classroom on the third floor, they found the empty classroom with the teacher in it and went into that classroom and got safe, right? And, you know, doing a drill like that also exposes some blind spots where you need to address security a little bit better, have some personal conversations with people about doing better. But by and large, that was a, a really interesting look at our own uh, policies and procedures and, and how they were being followed. Excellent. So one of the things that, you know, 
I think we we see a lot, and unfortunately, in the news just recently, uh, we're seeing a lot of school lockdowns because of hoax calls and things like that. And I know that one of the things that goes along with that is oftentimes a lot of parents feel compelled, the need um, to just show up at the school. And I know that from my former law enforcement experience, that just creates more chaos and causes us to divert resources uh, away from, you know, clearing the school or getting things back under control. So how do you, what would you say is a good way to message parents, you know, and other stakeholders to say, you know, stay away, we'll keep you informed, but let us, you know, follow our procedures and get things done. That is a great question. And it's always a growing concern for school administrators and superintendents. So here, the way you deal with that is through preparation and communication, because you know, as well as I do, we are seeing kids as young as third and fourth grade have mobile phones, smartphones on their person that parents buy them. So what that translates into is real time information getting out to parents of what could be happening, what a student perceives might be happening or what might actually be happening. So there's no getting around the real time information that a student is going to be pushing out there either to a parent, Facebook Live, Instagram, Snapchat, TikTok, whatever it might be. There's a platform that they're going to use. As a school administrator, you have to be the one true voice. I'll give you an example again. When we did that modified lockdown, we had told students and parents that at some point during the week, there was going to be an emergency procedure that we were going to practice. Didn't say what it was, didn't say what it was going to be. The second that we called that lockdown in the middle of in the middle of passing the principal had a message already written set to go to to all of the parents letting them know that the drill was in progress that way if a child is now sending something out the parent already knows from the one true voice of the school that this is this is what's happening Conversely, if you do have a crisis event at your school, and I've been through a few of them in my other district, the, the problem you run into is that you may not be able to get the message out as fast as parents want it. Because let's face it, Brian, we are living in a society of instant communication and also instant gratification. So what happens is a parent wants to know information instantaneously. However, as you know, being a former, you know, LEO, right, there could be something going on or there could be an investigation happening as a result of that incident where we cannot tell you what's going on. Well, that because that, that would that compromise definitely it leads me into my next question, which, you know, another yeah. thing that I hear from parents is there is a feeling that they have a right to know, you know, when rumors are going about the school, you know, not even when there's a lockdown or a drill, but just, you know, there's a rumor going around the school that their kids have heard or something else. 
and they're, you know, I'm sure calling your office, they're calling the police department, you know, we want to know, I have a right to know my child goes to that school, you know, and as you and I both know, I mean, you're dealing with juveniles. So your ability to release information yeah. is limited anyway, you know, and it's very hard to sometimes put a stop to the rumors. And you alluded to it a little bit about the instant gratification and communication that misinformation spreads even faster than real information. So it's, it's a constant battle. So how do you deal it, it, with it so those demands? Yeah. So let me, let me kind of wrap up that last question for, for a second. So when, when you know, if there is an incident, a real incident happening at your school, parents are coming. I'm a parent. Uh, you know, they're coming to the school. So that has to be in your crisis response plan. You have to plan for that. And the way you do that is with your police and your first responders. So they know what arteries to shut off, what streets to shut off and, you know, who to let in and who not to let in. But that only works if the school and the police department are also working in unison together uh, under incident command and pushing out information to those parents about about what they possibly know as of right now, letting them know that their children are safe. Uh, if you know if that is the case, heaven forbid, let let them know that their children are safe and that more information will be coming. And then we will set up a reunification spot. Right. So as long as you have those things in place, yes, the parents are going to come. But if you're planning for it, you, you'll be OK. Uh, with respect to the communication side of things and that instant gratification, parents do have a right to know. OK. But when a, in, a, in a hot situation, which we, we had been in uh, with the bomb scare in my prior district, uh, luckily it was nothing. But the school received the package and it was a suspicious package. And what parents didn't know, right, they had to wait 45 minutes from when that incident began until I was allowed to communicate with them. And I say allowed because, interestingly, the captain of the state police at the time uh, who was running that scene what also was on the Rhode Island School Safety Committee with me. So I was under orders not to send anything out because they were completing an investigation on their side with the United States Postal Service. And, you know, when you really think of that situation, uh, we were able to get the information, complete the investigation. I had pictures on my phone from the postmaster general from the person who sent the package within 45 minutes. And then the communication went out. To me, that's not bad timing when you're in the when you're in the middle of a crisis. You know, no. the crisis starts, kids get eva evacuated, and and we wrapped it up in 45 minutes and got information out to parents. But that wasn't good enough. They they wanted it faster than that. And I think that's the society that we live in. But as long as you're trying to communicate and and be that one that one honest, true voice communicating out to parents, I think that goes a long way in letting them know that their kids are safe, it's under control, we're investigating, and you're going to be able to pick up your kids in an hour or so. The other piece of this is I've always been of the opinion that you build strong relationships with your media outlets. And you do that bit by bit 
you, you know, with stories and other things and you invite them to your school so that when a crisis happens and you need to tell them information or tell them to hold on a second, they have a relationship with you and they know that you're, you're being honest with them too. I think a lot of people are afraid of the media. I think the media can be uh, an, an incredible tool in a crisis situation if you've built the right relationships with them. No, I think that's absolutely true. And, you know, any time that you increase transparency, I, I think you're yeah. you're building your reputation. And that's something that, you know, in my law enforcement career, I, I worked at as the PIO, you know, and I, and I think that's true. It, it helps and it takes time, but it fosters in the community that they will be hearing from the voice of authority who will give them good information. So to just sort of jump ahead here, you know, my, my last question here, and it, it's a difficult one, I'm sure, is that we all know that the weakest link in any part of security, be it physical, cyber, or anything else, is the human element. So how do you create a plan that, you know, you can execute, you know, at all levels that has some tolerance for the fact that somebody is going to leave a hole in your security. The best design security system, you know, is only as good as the people that, you know, are using it, are inside of it. But, you know, we've seen tragic examples of the prop door or, you know, clicking on the wrong link and being subject to ransomware across a district. So how do you build that into your response plan to be able to deal with that? Or is it even possible? It is possible, but you, you bring up such a, a crucial point. And I guess my short answer to that is training and technology. And, you know, the staff members know, right, how important it is to keep the doors locked. We do checks on that. We have purchased locks that you can lock very quickly from the inside so you don't have to fumble with the key. Uh, but you also have juveniles and children in a building. And if, so, if, you know, if a juvenile is leaving a door propped open for their friend who just texted them because they're going to be late, and if they're late again, they're going to get a detention, you know, in, in the scheme of a school emergency, that detention doesn't really matter, but it matters to them. And so they may leave a door open, right, to, to allow their friend in. And so it's really changing that culture of uh, if you see something, say something. You, if that door is propped open, it should be shut. We give them directives to do that. And then I also say the technology piece, because we're fortunate here to have gone through a $60 million renovation on our high school with state-of-the-art technology and alarms and everything else. So if a door is left open, then administration gets an alert of exactly which door is left open. Um, we also... Uh, we're a fob system here. So the only way you're getting in the building is through a fob. Now that fob logs in who the user was, when the last time they logged in and what door they logged in. So we know that if someone logged into a door, then that door was propped open. We likely have it on camera and we likely know the exact time that you logged in. And so the technology is getting cheaper and better at that, but not every place can implement that kind of technology. And so then you have to rely back on your procedures and your and, and kind of the training piece of it on what to do and what not to do.
But I agree with instilling the culture of security. Yeah, but it typically is that human error. And even on the cyber side, you know, we we just went through a, a, a training, you know, the think before you click training. Every single employee in the district went went through the training to be sure you're at least aware of malware and ransomware and all these things. And, and the other piece connected to that is a lot of these insurance companies that are insuring districts in towns and cities, they want to make sure you are doing that training. Because if you're not doing that training and you get hit, then you could have an issue with your insurance policy. So that is crucially important too. The cyber stuff is just as important. And on the training side of things, I require all of my administrators to go through ICS 100. Every single one of them has to be trained in incident command. And every single one of them is trained as a crowd control manager. That's a course that happens in Rhode Island through the Rhode Island fire marshals. So all my administrators are trained as crowd control managers and they're all trained at ICS 100. So that if something happens in their building, they are at least going to be familiar with how the police and fire and EMS are going to set up their incident command and how they're going to fit into that. And as an aside, I, I teach principals how to be principals at Providence College in their uh, grad program. Every one of my students, I do a whole thing on crisis response. Every single student gets certified in ICS 100 before they leave my class. It's a requirement of the class. So I think it's, it's that level of training. Um, and, and how unfortunate is it that we even have these discussions, right, about educators, right? No one goes into education wanting to be a quasi-security guide, right? But that's really what we are because safety is such an, an, an important piece of it now because of the tragedies that we see, unfortunately, all too frequently. Yeah, no. And as sad as it is, I, I think that's where we'll leave it for today. Uh, Dr. Lawrence Filippelli from the uh, Lincoln Public School Superintendent of Schools, Thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, I think this has been really informative and some great information. Uh, and hopefully uh, we'll be able to get you back and we'll speak again in the future. Absolutely. Love to. Thank you. Thank Excellent. you, Brian. Thank you. That concludes today's episode of Industry Focused Security. I want to thank Dr. Filippelli for joining us. And I hope you will join us on our next episode. Until then, stay safe.